Seamus Blackley caused quite a stir during COVID-19. You may know him as one of the inventors of Xbox, and that's about all that I know about Xbox. But he made quite a stir because he made a loaf of bread that was 4,500 years old. And you may say, well, how can he do that? He had worked with a couple of museums and a couple of Egyptologists and archaeologists and had recovered some yeast from one of the clay pots from Egypt. And he took the germ of that yeast and he made a starter of, of, of bread using the instructions from Egyptian hieroglyphics. Now that is really, I, I don't know if he ate it or not, but there's a picture of the bread online. You can see it. And of course, some of you have done that sort of thing, not using 4,500-year-old yeast, but you have used some kind of starter that ferments the flour and causes the bread to rise. It uses natural yeasts and bacteria and causes baked goods to rise. You know about that, especially those of you ladies who are homemakers. In ancient Jewish culture, the starter was taken from last year's dough to make this or last week's dough to make this week's bread. And it was passed on from week to week, from month to month, from generation to generation, down through the years. And yes, they did use leavened bread in Jewish culture, but we're going to talk about unleavened bread in a moment. The oldest continuous American starter of sourdough bread is reputedly from San Francisco, from what is called the heirloom Bodhi mixture. It was preserved for 40 years from the early 1800s until the bakery started producing bread commercially in 1850, and that starter has continued from one generation through the other for over 200 years. Some of you have done that sort of thing, uh, not for 200 years, but maybe you have even passed your starter on to the next generation. You know, yeast is good for bread, but Jesus talks to us today about he gives us a warning about its effect when we find it in matters of faith. If you're visiting this morning, you may not be familiar. We're in the middle of, literally in the middle of about a year and a half series of sermons on messages on Jesus's imperatives. And the last three are connected somewhat. Two weeks ago, we heard about beware the wolves. And that was from Matthew, the seventh chapter from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus warned about misleading men, false prophets, charlatans of bad character who deceive. And we made the observation that they are still among us. And then last week, we saw that he told us not to be misled from Matthew, the 24th chapter. And this wasn't about men of bad character. It was about misleading messages especially those messages that are not only false, but divisive in content. And he focuses there on messages that mislead people about the end times. And today we look at beware the leaven. Instead of bad characters and charlatans, instead of bad messages, we look at misleading methods. How false teaching then can enter the church? How false teaching and bad character can infect the kingdom of God? You know, the events leading up to the text in Matthew 16 today actually have their background in the feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000. Beginning with the feeding of the 5,000, after that, then Jesus walked on the sea. 
And then he went to Gennesaret and he performed many miracles of healing and then encountered the scribes and the Pharisees and the account is in both Matthew and Mark where he is challenged about his violation and the violation of his disciples of the purity code. And Jesus responded, as you will remember, by chastising them, the scribes and the Pharisees, about empty worship, using their tradition, in fact, against the law for profit and for their own purposes, not understanding what it means then to be pure. It is not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but what? What comes out of a person, man or woman. And then he very pointedly, in the Matthew account, accuses them of being blind guides who lead the blind. Afterward, then, he went into Syrophoenicia, and he exercised the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. And then he performed more healing miracles around the Sea of Galilee and the Decapolis. And this section concludes with his feeding again of a large multitude, this time 4,000, probably in the Decapolis and then it says that Jesus departed in a boat to Magadan, which may be Magdala, in the region of Dalmanutha, south of Gennesaret. So those are the events that lead up to Matthew, the 16th chapter. At the beginning of the 16th chapter, we're not going to read this part of the account in the first four verses, there is an encounter with sign seekers. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, Matthew tells us, then test Jesus. This is the first time that these two groups, visibly in the New Testament, have teamed up against Jesus. But it's possible that the Sadducees have been part of the plotting much earlier. Because we know after he had healed a man with a withered hand, it says that the Pharisees went out and plotted with the Herodians. And this is early in the Gospel of Mark. And they plotted how they might kill Jesus. Now the fact of the matter is, many of the Herodians were Sadducees. And they may have been amongst that group that had been plotting secretly already. And so now you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees that come and they test Jesus at the beginning of Matthew, the 16th chapter, and they demanded a sign. This is not the first time. In fact, it's the fourth time that we know of in the Gospels where he has been asked to give a sign. After the temple cleansing in John, the sixth chapter, they wanted to know by what authority have you done this? Give us a sign. In Matthew, the 12th chapter, after he healed the blind mute in Galilee, the Pharisees demanded a sign for his authority to do so. And Jesus rebuked them, and he says, this is an evil and adulterous generation. Only that kind of generation seeks signs. He said, I'll give you a sign. And he gave them the sign of Jonah, which pointed to his being resurrected on the third day. And after the feeding of the 5,000, this is a third occasion before this, he then goes to the synagogue in Capernaum, and the crowds then want proof that he is a legitimate prophet. They want proof. They want more bread. That's what they want. They want another sign, and they ask him for a sign. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew 16, they're not, 16 are not satisfied with the many miracles that Jesus has performed and the multiple exorcisms. He has done them repeatedly throughout Galilee and even some of them occasionally in Judea. But you see, they think this way. They think it is possible for a false prophet to do miracles if they are empowered by Satan. And they have even accused Jesus in Matthew, the 12th chapter, of being possessed by Beelzebub. You see, what they want is a sign from heaven. They want a sign from heaven that comes through him, something like the manna that came out of heaven, the bread of heaven, to the Jews in the wilderness. 
They want something like the stopping of the sun when Joshua was, was fighting the Amorites in Joshua, the 10th chapter. They want a sign from heaven like Elijah, who calls upon God to bring down fire upon the altar there at Carmel. And Jesus rebukes them, you see. He said, you know, it's really interesting. You see signs all the time. Red at night, sailors what? Delight. Red in morning, sailors what? Warning. And he basically uses that analogy. And he says, you see the signs and you can predict the weather, but you cannot see the more important signs and discern what they mean. And then what does he say? He says, I am not, I've told you this before, I am not going to give you another sign. The sign of Jonah is sufficient. And you see, then he left them. That is when he gets into the boat and he departs to Magadan. And he went away. So would you stand with me together as we read the text for this morning? From Matthew, the 16th chapter, verses 5 through 12. He's departed to Magadan. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out, and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why, you, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Are the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. May God bless the reading of his word as we are seated. There's some parallel passages to this in the Gospels. Luke has one verse, Luke 12, 1. What Luke has done is he has omitted, just prior to this, Matthew's events after the feeding of the 5,000 and Mark's events after the feeding of the 5,000. So there's many things that ran between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 as background for this passage. Luke doesn't talk about but he puts the opposition to the purity code in a different context. Remember, we talked about Jesus confronting the scribes and the Pharisees about the purity code. He puts it in the context of Luke eleven thirty-seven through 41, but it's important for today's story. You see, the setting there is a Galilean Pharisee that invites Jesus to come and to eat with him. It isn't the Pharisees and the scribes that have come up from Jerusalem, the Matthew account. And then he observes that Jesus himself does not wash his hands before he eats. And he is shocked at this. And Jesus' response is very much like what, what it was in Matthew's account, but he goes a little further. He says it's not, you see, what's on the outside that really matters. It's the inside. If one is obedient to God, all things that he made are clean to him. And he pronounces then many of the woes that we find upon the Pharisees in Matthew, the 23rd chapter. And then he explicitly calls the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites. This is all in chapter 11, leading up to 12.1. And then a lawyer objects and says, well, if you're accusing them of that, then you're accusing us lawyers of the same thing. And Jesus looks at him and he said, you got it. I am. You're guilty of the same thing. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees reacted. They, they then began to be hostile and they plotted together against Jesus. And they questioned him closely, the scripture says. They were looking for some excuse. They were looking for him to make a mistake so that they could accuse him. And then this is what Luke says as a warning. He says, under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And here's the important phrase, which is hypocrisy. So you see, he gives a definition to what this leaven is in Luke's gospel. Mark's gospel tracks along with Matthew's gospel after the feeding of the 5,000 to the feeding of the 4,000 with some small differences. But when we look at Mark's account of this particular incident, there's some differences between the accounts. In the warning, he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And then he doesn't say Sadducees, but he says the leaven of Herod. And then he gives admonitions that are pretty strong. They are stronger than the ones that we find in Matthew's account. O ye of little faith. He goes on and he says, are your hearts not hardened? And instead of simply saying, do you not understand? He says, you have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, but you don't hear. And in Mark's account, there's no happy closure on the part of the disciples. At the end of the Matthew account, what does it say? It says, and then they understood. But Mark leaves it in suspense. You see, Mark leaves it without their understanding. That's important because when we look at Mark's viewpoint versus Matthew's viewpoint, what's going on here? You see, in Mark's account, Jesus confronts the sign seekers before he crosses the sea. And it's unclear in, in Mark's account whether the disciples actually witness the confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees. They probably did in Mark's account. Maybe they did. The significance of this is, in Mark's account, one of the reasons that there is a harsher indictment against the disciples is simply this. If they have seen this confrontation with the Pharisees, and they heard what Jesus said to them, and if they're in the boat with him as they cross the sea, they really, as they're talking to him, should have understood his warning about the leaven. Therefore, Mark renders a pretty sharp rebuke. In Matthew's account, it's a little different. Jesus crossed the sea first, apparently by himself, and then he encountered the sign-seeking Pharisees and Sadducees without the disciples witnessing it. And the significance of this is that the rebuke in Matthew is not quite as strong. You see, they did not know what had prompted Jesus in his warning about the leaven. And they really don't understand what Jesus is talking about when he brings up the issue of the leaven. It may explain some confusion in this event. There are two different concerns that arise in Matthew's account. One is, what are the disciples worried about? They've forgotten bread. But it's not just that they've forgotten bread. They're worried about later that day. What are they going to eat? So their focus is on the physical bread. They're lacking bread, and where's the provision going to come from? Jesus has another concern. He's worried not about physical bread. He's worried that they will have pure bread and that their spiritual bread would not be adulterated. And so 
in our explanation of this text, I think there are three things that we ought to focus on. One is Jesus addressing their lack of faith about the physical bread, the disciples' lack of understanding about the spiritual bread, and Jesus' concern about the danger of leaven. Beware the leaven. See, Jesus was concerned about the disciples' lack of faith. This has been demonstrated several times before. You know that he has said that they have weak faith on more than one occasion, three times at least. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, why do you worry about what you eat and drink and what you wear? Don't you know that your heavenly Father is going to feed you? Don't you know that he's going to clothe you? Oh, ye of little faith, don't worry about these things. When they were in the boat in the middle of the storm, they call out to Jesus, don't you know that we're about to drown? And he saves them by saying, be calm. And the wind and the waves become like glass, totally calm. And then it says that they, had, they were completely astonished. You see, they, they were afraid that they were going to sink. And he calls them, oh, ye of little faith. And of course, when Peter was walking on the water and he took his eyes off Jesus and he began to slip under the waves on another occasion, Jesus says, Peter, why did you doubt, oh, you of little faith? What's interesting about this, and we've made this observation before, the disciples time and time and time again have, have demonstrated that they, in fact, are, are men of little faith. But when Jesus identifies people of great faith in the Gospels, two occasions, they happen to be Gentiles. The centurion who believes that Jesus can heal from afar was not a Jew. And Jesus commends this probably God-fearer for his great faith. And the, the Syrophoenician woman to whom we referred earlier, she does not give up with Jesus. At first, she thinks that he's not going to exercise and heal her daughter, and she persists, continuing to ask him to heal her. And he says, woman, this has happened because of your great faith. What a contrast between these Gentiles who have great faith in Jesus and really, really trust him and his disciples who have yet learned, yet to learn what great faith is. You see, con constantly Jesus was emphasizing their need to rely on God for their needs. In the Sermon on the Mount, we pray to the Father and we ask him to do what? Give us today our what? Daily bread. In the Sermon on the Mount, as we said a moment ago, he says, why do you worry about what you eat or drink or what you wear? Don't you know God provides for the birds of the, of the air, the field? Don't you know that he's going to care for you? In the same sermon, he says, you know, if you earthly fathers care enough for your children that when they ask for bread, you don't give them a stone, or if they ask for a fish, you don't give them a snake, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask him. You see, he was constantly emphasizing their need to rely on the Father to provide. And he has given them two powerful demonstrations. He's fed the 5,000 and he's fed the 4,000. Can you imagine how frustrated he is then when these Pharisees and Sadducees continue to ask for signs? Jesus has done it. He has given a sign from heaven. He has provided them bread, just as God provided bread for Israel in the desert. And he says, and I am going to provide you the bread of heaven. 
He has demonstrated. And what he's saying to his disciples is when he says, oh, you're of weak faith, of little faith. He is imploring them simply to trust him, to trust him to provide for their every need. As we heard Jim talk about this morning, we need to turn to him and to trust him for those things that we need. And it points back to the Sermon on the Mount where he says not to worry about these things. And you know then what he says in the conclusion of that part of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know, the pagans run after all these things. But your father knows that you need them. But do what? Don't worry about these things, but do what? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you. You see, the disciples had their eyes on the problems of the world and not the promises of the kingdom. There's a second concern, and that's about the the disciples' lack of understanding. Jesus was often misunderstood. It's because most of the people in his day saw everything through a materialistic lens and not through spiritual eyes. Nicodemus, how is it possible for a man to go back up into his mother's womb and be born again? He didn't understand. The woman at the well thought that he was talking about literal water that would come out of that deep, deep, deep Jacob's well, not spiritual water. The Capernaum crowd after the feeding of the 5,000, when he says to them, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, they took it literally. When he spoke in parables, they saw, but they did not perceive. They heard, but they did not understand. And even his disciples were guilty of this from time to time. He had to explain the parable of the sower to them. He had to explain the parable of the tares to them. His disciples were not exempt from the indictment that he puts on the other people who do not understand. He exhorts them to see things spiritually. When when Jesus stilled the storm to which we referred earlier in Mark, the sixth chapter, they were utterly astonished. And it says they were so amazed because they had not learned the lesson from the bread of the feeding of the 5,000. They had not understood that he would provide and take care of them. And it says in Mark's gospel that their hearts were hardened. It's that lack of understanding. On another occasion, In the Purity Code account, in Matthew, the 15th chapter, he tells a parable, which we didn't cover when we preached on the parables, but he tells a parable of the heart of a man. And that's when he says, don't you know? He has to explain to Peter, because Peter says, what do you mean by this parable, Lord? And he explains it to him. He says, don't you know it's not what goes into a man that that, uh, makes him unpure, but what comes out. But in his response to Peter's request, listen to what he says. Are you still lacking in understanding, Peter? Do do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth then passes through the stomach and then is eliminated? So he held his disciples also to a high level of accountability for understanding. Jesus' point was this. The disciples were without excuse. Whether or not they were in the boat with him or whether or not he had gone ahead and they met him later, they were without excuse. You see, they had already heard him rebuke the religious leaders. Those that had questioned his authority to forgive sin when he healed a paralytic. They heard that. When he rebuked those religious leaders in Matthew, the 12th chapter, that demanded a sign to show his power, he rebuked them and they heard it. When they were constantly asking for signs, such as we find in Matthew, the 12th chapter, and then again in Matthew, the 16th chapter, They had heard in Matthew, the 12th chapter, already this. They heard the rebuke. When he had chastised the Pharisees about empty worship, 
and the hypocritic purity code in Matthew the 15th chapter. They had heard it. You see, they had heard him time and time and time address the problem of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and yet they had not understood. There's another reason, though. It's not just that they're dense mentally. It's not just that they lack faith. They're forgetful. They're forgetful. Look at verse number 9. Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000? Their memory was impaired by their grumbling stomachs. Think about it. They don't remember the 5,000. They don't remember the demonstration of the 4,000. They're so hungry, they're worried about, okay, is it going to happen again? I think part of their memory was due to a lack of gratitude and sufficient thankfulness. And sometimes that happens to us. There's a third concern. Uh, not just that they were weak in faith and lacked understanding, but there was the danger of the leaven. Leaven in Jewish culture, we know, symbolized impurity and corruption. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread, they used unleavened bread for a couple of reasons. One was because it symbolized impurity and corruption, but also, too, they, it, it symbolized their need to be holy and pure before the Lord. But it was, there was a very obvious reason. In the account in Exodus, the 12th chapter, it says they had to leave in haste. They didn't have time for the dough to rise. And so they took with them unleavened bread. No offering could be given to God with leaven in it. Not the bread eaten with the Passover lamb. Not the bread that was eaten with the blood offering. And not any grain offering. You see, leaven was forbidden. And you know what leaven is. Go back to our original illustration. It's a single cell fungus that activates fermentation, and it converts the sugar and the starch to carbon dioxide molecules and to Baptist alcohol. Yeah. So there's a fermentation that goes on there. It's a relatively slow pro process. Now, it, it doesn't take days and days and days, but it doesn't happen instantly. So it's a slow process. It works silently and undetected. We only see the result after the bread rises, and it affects what? Not just part of the loaf, but the whole loaf. And this is what Jesus is talking about. You see, this is happening in his culture around him. Silently and secretly and undetected, the evil one is at work infecting the people of God and the kingdom of God. And Jesus has, de has described the corruptive nature of this leaven in three ways. You see, in Matthew, the 16th chapter, he des describes this leaven as what? He says it is hypocrisy. And then in uh, Matthew, the 16th chapter, he speaks about it being the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then in Mark, the 8th chapter, he says that it is the teaching of the Pharisees, or it's the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Look at those three types of, of leaven very briefly. The false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What was going on there? The Pharisees, of course, we know their emphasis on legalism, the purity code, and extra-biblical conditions. Obsessed with minutiae, the smallest things, mint and cumin, tithing them, and yet ignoring justice and mercy and faithfulness. A very elaborate theology that split theological hairs to their benefit by the way that they analyzed and used oaths. False teachings of the Pharisees, false teachings of the Sadducees, who were deists at best, and many of them virtually close to being atheists, who denied the resurrection and the coming kingdom of God, 
who focused all of their hope on that building called the temple and the ritualism that brought to them wealth and riches and driven by a materialistic philosophy that was probably that had probably come from the Epicureans. Avoid those kinds of teachings is what Jesus is saying. When you look at the scribes and the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, another kind of leaven, the empty religion, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are where, friends? Far from me. Making a pretense of righteousness and long showy prayers, enriching themselves by devouring widows' houses, whitewashed sepulchers and tombs, clean on the outside but rotten on the inside, and they were driven just as much as the Sadducees by desire for wealth and materialism, the flowing robes that they wore throughout the streets, wanting the best seats in the synagogues and titles of honor. Beware of the, heres- the, the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he talks about the leaven of Herod. Well, what is that? Well, many of the Sadducees were Herodians. I think here what he's talking about is be, be, beware of the leaven of political correctness. Accommodating to the paganism of Hellenistic Rome, the Sadducees followed only the Torah, but they made this excuse. If you do not find it forbidden in the Torah, it is allowable. And this enabled them to compromise their principles and to follow along with Herod. Anything not forbidden was allowed, and it led to a kind of social and cultural liberalism, though they claimed to be biblical conservatives. Beware of the, Her- be- beware of the leaven of Herod. And there's one that Jesus doesn't mention explicitly, but later we find in John the 12th chapter is clearly there. And it's the leaven of peer pressure and acceptability. You see, John tells us then that most of the people refused to believe Jesus, even though he had performed many miracles. And it fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah the 6th chapter. The reason this happens, he says, is because their eyes were blinded And Isaiah prophesied that, and their hearts were hardened. You see, they do not understand, and they have little faith. And then it goes on to say, but many rulers believed. Can you believe that? Many of the rulers believed in John the 12th chapter, but they refused to confess Jesus. Why? Because they feared the the Pharisees, and they were afraid of being expelled from the synagogues. Beware of the leaven of peer pressure. John 12 says, for they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Three quick applications in closing. question I would ask us this morning is, how great is our faith? Do we truly seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and do we truly rely on Him to provide for our every need? And when we do that and when He provides... Do we do more than say a thanksgiving prayer when we collect the offering? Do we give him credit where credit is due? You heard Jim this morning, and I think this would be all of our testimony if we would really think about it. Anything good that has happened in our life comes from the Father of lights, who is the author of every good and perfect gift. Are we thankful people, not just at Thanksgiving and at Christmas? A second observation, how deep is our understanding? Do we see things only from a worldly perspective like the Sadducees? Or do we see with spiritual eyes, taught by the Word of God and enlightened by His Spirit? And how good is our memory? How great is our thankfulness for God's goodness? How many times has God worked in your life or my life? 
And we don't stop and pause from time to time when we are weak in faith to face tomorrow and remember, remember, call to memory and rehearse the goodness of God and how he has done things to deliver us in the past. Do we sufficiently acknowledge his provision and do we attribute to him the glory that is due him? Last observation. I think Jesus is telling us even today, especially with the false prophets around us and the misleading messages, that we must guard against the encroaching leaven. Empty religion that gives lip service to God and not heart. Legalism when we become obsessed with traditions that obscure biblical truth and true religion. Political correctness that prevents us from pursuing what the Bible says is right when people say what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right. Social liberalism that makes us captive to culture and not captive, as Luther said, to the Word of God. Materialism that blinds our eyes so that we don't see things as they really are and we don't witness to the glory of the gospel. And peer pressure that causes us to compromise and not confess Christ as we should. Beware of the leaven. It is all around us, and it wants to creep into the kingdom of God. And we must pray that God will put up a fence, a hedge against it, and keep us pure. May we understand God's truth more clearly, trust Christ more earnestly, and worship God more purely. Would you pray with me? Father, we do want to walk as children of the light. We want to follow Jesus. Help us that we will set our our sight and our eyes on him. That if there is someone this morning who has heard the gospel, has heard the good news of the redeeming love of your son Jesus Christ by the sacrifice that he made on the cross, to redeem that person from sin and death and to give them the gift of eternal life if they will only trust in him, if they will only trust and obey him and turn his or her life over to him. We pray this morning that that person will do that, to trust him completely. Give us eyes to see your truth more clearly, and God, guard us so that our worship will be pure and clean in your sight. And may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be a delight to you, O Lord, today, as we lift them up in our hymn of invitation as we respond to you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.